All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Public Speaker Podcast. Today, I have a pretty, pretty awesome guest uh, that I managed to get on the podcast. His name is Aaron Beverly, and he is the 2019 World Champion of Public Speaking. 2019, right? Yep, correct. 2019. He is recent as ever. I believe he won it just in August. Uh, he has a long history with public speaking, if you ever Google his name and watch some of his awesome speeches on YouTube. So we're going to get some insights today about public speaking from someone who we've never had on the podcast, which is a world champion of public speaking. Uh, and we're going to get all of their juicy little tips for free on how to get better at the art of speaking. Because, you know, where else are you going to get those tips for free? Anyway, Aaron, please introduce who you are, where you're from, how you got into speaking, and then we'll get into some deeper stuff. Sure, sure. I grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, born and raised, and I got involved with public speaking when I was a really young kid, and that was through the dictatorship of a dictator known as Mom. <laughs> Every time that there was a opportunity to speak in front of a group, she would want me to do it. I remember as early as five or six years old, she wanted me to read a passage in front of the entire church congregation, a passage from the Bible. And the congregation was probably about 100 to 200 people, but she didn't feel that that was going to be a problem. So I got up there and I spoke. Same thing in middle school. I graduated from middle school. I wasn't the valedictorian, but the powers that be decided that they were going to have the top four students speak at the graduation and I was one of those four. So I couldn't really get away from public speaking as a kid. Right. It wasn't until I got to college that I finally realized that I needed to get better at public speaking. Right. And that was when I had a traumatic experience where I got up in front of a large group and completely blanked out, completely embarrassing and I never wanted to experience that again. So I joined Toastmasters in the year 2009 and for anybody who doesn't know, Toastmasters is an international organization that helps people get better with their communication and leadership skills. And I went there solely for the communication side. I needed to get better at that. And it just so happened that 2009 was right after the 2008 presidential campaign, campaign in the United States where Barack Obama was on the campaign trail. I was definitely inspired by him to just start speaking. and. I joined in 2009 and I haven't looked back since. That is so funny because um, my mom had me do the same type of stuff when I was like five, six, seven years old because I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be a singer. And I was really yeah. into dancing and singing and all this stuff. And uh, we would go to random family friends of friends' houses. People I barely know. She would like, go, go perform your dance for them after dinner. I'm like, mom, we don't even know these people. She's like, just go do it. <laughs> and... I hated her at the moment for forcing me to do that, but honestly, and this is my next question to you, do you feel like subliminally and subconsciously your mom forcing you to be in those positions played a major role in your ability to adapt and get over the stage? I know in college you blanked out in front of people, but do you think that was a starting point for you to get into public speaking? I honestly don't. Like, Obviously, when you look back and you try to connect the dots, you can see that there was a theme, but... I wasn't really conscious of it until I had experienced it. And I right. think it's the same for a lot of people. Right. They have these experiences, but they can't really appreciate them consciously until they have an experience of, for their own. Right. 
they have to have a traumatizing experience or they have to see that their parents were right the entire time in order for them to really appreciate what they went through. So I think that's what it was for me. So I didn't appreciate it at the time, but looking back on it, I would appreciate it. But I would definitely say that my personal experience is what was the trigger point. Now, you started Toastmasters in 2009. How old were you in 2009? Uh, how old was I in 2009? So I would have been 21 or going on 22. And I'm assuming you had already entered like uh, the corporate America job market at that time? No, I actually joined Toastmasters when I was a senior in college. Got you. Okay, so was the inspiration to join Toastmasters purely because of that traumatic incident you had, uh, or was it because you were entering the job market and you wanted more marketable skills with communication? I mean, it was a combination of both of that, of that the one of the place in the job market, as well as the traumatizing experience. And I also alluded to being inspired by Barack Obama, but I would say that it was a blend of three of those. So I joined Toastmasters at the behest of one of the former presidents of Toastmasters International. So Toastmasters in over 140 countries around the world. And it just so happened that at my small nowhere school, it's called Central Pennsylvania College, right across the river from Harrisburg. People who live in Central Pennsylvania don't know that this place exists. Right. He happened to be an adjunct professor at that college. So he was the person that told me about Toastmasters and I saw his ability to speak and I said I wanted that ability. And then the same thing, like I said, with Barack Obama. So there were no jobs and I had a finance degree, which is probably the worst degree to have during the Great Recession. Yeah. So I wanted a way to get exposed to skills that could put me at a higher place in the marketplace. But I just found Toastmasters and ran with it. And I would definitely say that it's helped me. And yeah, I definitely wouldn't have my current career and position right now if it wasn't for Toastmasters. Now, you didn't win the world championship of speaking uh, until 10 years later in 2019. So I kind of want yeah. you to walk me through 2009 to 2019. Obviously, you don't become a champion over day. It, does take a long time to get to that level but you tried a couple of times before that and you got close but you didn't get to the championship now given that your career right now uh in the corporate world like you're not literally just going around giving speeches right now you're like you have a corporate position in 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 the in jp morgan in the in a financial Correct. institution what was the motivation to keep trying to become the champion was it just because like you wanted to, to win that damn championship <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, when I first started, I started competing in 2012 and I was inspired to compete by another person who had been on the world stage and I saw him in 2011. Ironically enough, he was in my contest this year uh, in the 2019 World Championship. His name is Kwang Yu Yang. Okay. And I saw his speech. He came in second place in 2011. I saw that speech and I said, okay, that's a cool speech. That's a cool story. I want to do the same. So that's what really inspired me to start competing in the world in, in the international speech contest. Then I decided that I was going to compete in 2012 and I wrote the best speech that had ever been written. And I thought that it was going to take me all the way to the championship. I dominated the first round, which is at the club level. And the only reason why I won that, I believe, is because I was the only person that participated. <laughs> And then, so I went to the next round thinking that, okay, I'm gonna dominate. But then 
I can't get out of the second round. And a person comes up to me afterwards and he says, do you want to know why you lost? Which is honestly the last thing that you want to hear when you're in a competition. But I was able to swallow my pride a little bit. And he basically explained to me that the way that I was speaking was very preachy. It was telling people what to do with really no substance. It was all sizzle and no steak. So what I had to do was I had to find a way to enhance my storytelling abilities. Right. And find out the fundamentals of public speaking. Now, I'd said before that I was inspired to join Toastmasters from Dilapabesekura, but I didn't utilize that relationship the best way that I could because I never asked him to mentor me. Right. So in 2013, I asked him to be my speech coach and mentor. He taught me the fundamentals of public speaking. He taught me the fundamentals of storytelling. And the Toastmasters contest is a six round contest. So the first year that I competed, I couldn't get out of the second round. With his instruction and guidance, I was able to make it all the way to round five, the semifinals in 2013. Nice. So that was a big jump for me. A lot of people, it takes them years to even get to the third round and then the fourth round. For me, I was able to go from couldn't get out the second round and then jumped all the way to the semifinals. But 2014, I decided to just take my mentor's teachings and then I tried to utilize them for myself, tried to start putting my own flair on things. And I went a little overboard where I tried to incorporate the skills of other popular speakers like a Tony Robbins and a Les Brown these guys who are really dynamic and energetic on stage. And I had this, I would call it a cute little speech where I had it pretty much rhyme throughout. And then I had voices that I would make and it was basically a big allegory of the three little pigs, but it was based on my life. Right. And it, it was pretty good, but I was able to get to the semifinals again. But I remember in that year, so 2014, there was a previous world champion that came his name is Randy Harvey, and he told me basically that I needed to scrap that entire thing and go with something different because there was no connection with the speech. It was a cute speech. It had nice vocal variety and all of that, but there was something missing, and that was the connection to me as a speaker. Right. And at the time, I didn't understand it. So we were talking about it before where you really can't understand why people are saying things or ask you to do things, but you have to experience it for yourself. So I pretty much said, okay, I'm not gonna create a new speech. I'm gonna go with what I have. So 2014, the Toastmasters International Convention and semifinals was in Malaysia that year. So I went to Malaysia, I gave that speech, and I will tell you right now that I have never looked at that performance again, uh, because I know that he was right, that there was no connection, that that wasn't the me that I was supposed to be. but. 2014 was a turning point for me because that's when I saw the 2014 world champion on stage. The 2014 champion, his name is Donajaya Hidetarachi. He has possibly the most popular Toastmasters world championship speech of all time. It's called I See Something. And that speech has about 4 million views on YouTube. It's easily the most watched world championship speech. I think the close, the second closest person is at 
about eight hundred thousand. That's how that's how far of a gap he has. Right. But the thing with him is that when he was on stage, he was just himself. There were no gimmicks. There were no crazy voices. It was just him on stage telling his story, sharing his message. And that is something that I took note of. So 2015, I started working on a new speech. And this one was actually about a bad dating experience that I had. I honestly didn't think that it would perform well. I didn't expect to get to the higher levels of the contest, but I was able to make it to round four, which is the district level of the international speech contest. And that was interesting because I placed second. So it was the first time in two years that I wasn't able to get to the semifinals. But somebody came up to me afterwards and he said, Aaron, that's the best speech that I ever heard you give. And this and the speech you make, you have to use it from round one all the way to the championship speech, right? So you don't have to. Honestly, from round one to round five, you can use as many different speeches as you'd like. Okay. The thing is that once you get to the world championship, round six, that has to be an entirely new speech. So that was 2015, and one would think that I was regressing because I couldn't get out of the of round four, which is the district level. Yeah. But I decided to take my speech and rework it, make it stronger. And fortunately for me, I have proximity to two Toastmaster districts. Right. So I, I work in the jurisdiction of District 18, and then I live in the jurisdiction of District 38. So Toastmasters, they separate their their membership into different regions and districts and areas. So I utilized that proximity to compete in District 18's contest that year. And I used the same speech that I used the year before. Then I was able to get to the semifinals again. But this time I was able to get beyond that and I made it to the world championship for the first time where I placed second. This is 2016? This is 2016. With the same dating story or was it a different speech in 2016? So I got to the world championship with the same dating story. But the at, speech that I the thought everybody would like. Right, but at the championship you performed a different speech. Yep, at the championship I performed a different speech. It's a speech that is just commonly known as the 57 word title speech. Okay, yes, I think I've heard of this before. Yes. Yep. So just to give you some context around that, and Toastmaster contest, especially for people who are coaching for the world championship, they would always say that your speech titles had to be short and concise in order to be memorable. And I am a contrarian. So if somebody says that you need to do something one way, I'm going to immediately question why, and I'm going to try to do the opposite. So I, instead of having a three or five words speech title, I made my speech title 57 words long. And the thing about that is when the Toastmaster contest gets started and the person is introduced, they introduce them by their name and then they say the speech title. Then they say the speech title again and then they say the person's name again. So the person who was chairing the contest had to read my 57 word title twice. 57 Before words, I even got sounds on. like a lot now that you say that, to be honest. <laughs> like. Yep. Yeah, he, and he had to read that twice. So I had a whole bunch of laughter and engagement with the audience before I even walked out on stage. 
Okay. So that's, you get into second place 2016, and then 2017, 2018, do you take a break, or do you keep trying? Nope. I competed every single year since 2012. In 2017, I actually decided, though, that I wasn't going to compete. And that was a bad decision on my part because once my round one, the, the time span for round one passed and I started immediately regretting it. And I said, okay, I, I really want to compete. I really want to compete. Then the area time span passed. And at this point, I didn't think that I was going to be able to compete, but there's some great areas in the Toastmaster rulebook where one of my Toastmaster clubs, they didn't actually hold an official contest. And since they didn't hold an official contest, they were able to elect somebody to go to the second round. Oh, okay. And just so happens that in the second round, they were the only club that even said that they were going to send somebody. So the second round actually never happened. So they actually were able to elect someone to go immediately to the third round. Right. But the person that they elected couldn't make it. So he asked me if I wanted to compete. And I said, I am not going to pass up this opportunity again. Yeah. And I said I was going to compete. So 2017, I actually skipped two rounds. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yep. That year I made it to the semifinals. And that year I it was a little bit different because people were when I came into the room, people were looking at me and they were it was this look of astonishment and awe, and I recognized it as the same type of look I would give other people who had been to the world championship before. Right. And it's, it's like a, almost an intimidation factor, like, oh my goodness, that's Aaron Beverly. Yeah, how, how can I compete against this person? And being in that position, it was just like, oh, okay, so this is this is how it felt? Uh, right. it, it really is no advantage. <laughs> I'm just Aaron. You have as much of a chance as everybody else. Yeah, man. I, I actually, I relate to that. I did speech and debate in high school. Um, so I, instead of the, the speaking part, which is like dramatic interpretation, humor, humorous interpretation, those competitive levels, I did Lincoln-Douglas debate, which is just one versus one. You have a resolution. You have to be affirmative and negative. Um, and by my senior year, I started developing a re reputation because I, I, I've done decently at some debate tournaments. And I remember walking into the bathroom once. I was waiting to use the urinal. They're like, is that a myth? <laughs> just like, bro, I got a pee just like you. Like, it, it's actually unique, you know, because at a young age, I was like 18 at the time, you get this weird feeling of celebrity, um, not to hyperbolize it or anything, but it, but people know who you are in the small niche of an industry you are. So I'm assuming in the speaking world, I mean, because people, your, your name has brand equity, it's a different type of feeling when people can recognize you. Yeah, it, it was def it took some getting used to. I got used to it a little bit from 2016. I learned how to take pictures without my face getting sore from smiling so much. Yeah, yeah. But it it's definitely weird because people know who you are, but you don't know them. So yeah. part of you feels like it's rude not to know their name, but you can't possibly remember all of the people that you met. So yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting feeling. I I but I've started to get used to it, especially because of the world championship now. But that was 2017, and I didn't get out of the semifinals that year. So once again, I started to regress. In 2018, I competed again, but couldn't get out of round five. So it was two years of going backwards, and other people would think again that hey, is this bad is this something that you need to work on but sometimes i will tell people that a lot of the contest is just plain dumb luck yep you can't control judging, right? the it's judging at the end of the yeah. day, judges make the decision you know exactly you can't control the judging you can't control the 
the skill level of your opponents. You can't control the circumstances, such as if you have a creaky stage or something like that, you can't control all of those things. So you just have to let it ride. And that is actually what caused me to change my approach in 2019. In 2019, I said, you know what? I've made it my goal every year to win the World Championship of Public Speaking. This year, I'm not gonna make it a goal. This year, I'm just gonna focus on what I can control and that's my growth. So I'm gonna focus on my growth as a speaker. Right. I'm gonna focus on speech execution because that's actually something that I regretted back in 2016 when I won second place. I didn't care so much about placing second. It was just that when I left the stage, I didn't think that I executed my speech the way that I wanted to. So I said that if I ever get back to the world stage again, I'm going to make sure that I execute the speech the way that it's supposed to be given. So that was, that itself was my goal. So I just decided that getting the trophy, that was no longer, that was no longer my goal. Although I wanted it, I wanted to win and it's okay to want to win. But when you're making it a goal and it's a goal that you can't really control, you're just going to frustrate yourself to no end. Right. You're setting yourself up for, for failure that is beyond your control. At that point. Exactly. And sometimes you can luck out, but most of the time you're not. There are 30,000 people that compete in the world championship or the international speech contest that culminates in the world championship. Right. But 2019, I went through round after round and I actually started to video record my process, sharing it with people online. And oddly enough, people started to actually get behind me. Right. And it got to a point where people were flying into the international convention in Denver saying that, oh, I can't wait for the winner of the 2019 World Championship. Hint, hint, is going to be Aaron Beverly. I'm like, wait, wait, whoa. <laughs> we, we still got two more rounds to go for this. Was was this was this uh were you trying to market yourself or were you generally just trying to get feedback from the internet on your speeches? Honestly, I wanted to share just the process of it. Right. Uh, part of it was wanting to share the process. Part of it was wanting to make the contest uh, make something bigger than the contest. So sharing this content content and giving it to people and telling them how it really is that was part of me giving back, and it made the contest season bigger than the actual contest itself and then it helped get my mind off of over focusing on the world championship right right and then i noticed though that it was an opportunity to market and brand myself because toastmasters they will heighten their attention during the contest season right so where you can become almost a, a semi-celebrity just by making it to the semifinals, and especially the way they structured the contest this year but I got to Denver and I, again, just tried to make sure that I wasn't overly focused on winning. But the odd thing I said in 2016, I wanted to make sure that I got on that stage again and executed the speech the way that I knew it was supposed to be given. If you were to look at these stages in 2016 and 2019, they're identical stages. Right. So it was as if somebody was saying like, okay, Aaron, I'm going to give you a second chance at this and just knock it out of the park. So on that same stage that I basically stood on in 2016, I was able to execute my speech and it resulted in the win. Right. So, okay, so now you, that, was, that was a good explanation. You took me from 10 years of your journey of trying to become a champion at public speaking. Um, and I'm assuming at, at the fundamental level, the motivation to keep going was not only to win, which you really wanted to do, but really just 
you, you made a goal, you know, 10 years ago, and it's kind of like you didn't want to die without that goal being accomplished in some respects. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, it was a dream that I wanted to check off, definitely. And I will say that the motivation in the beginning was definitely to win the trophy and the accolades. But as I grew, it really wasn't all about the trophy. It was about the growth. And when I stopped focusing on the trophy, when I actually stopped making it a goal to win the world championship, I won the world championship. It's kind of like people who want to get rich, right? Or people who want financial freedom. It's like if you pursue something you actually care about, the byproduct of that might be financial success. But if you're chasing money, then you know, it might not be the quickest way to get to money. Um, yep. Okay, cool. So let's talk uh, briefly about the 2019 championship, uh, championship speech. So now I watched it, thought it was a very interesting story, thought it was very unique. Uh, your speech was only around seven minutes, correct? That's the time limit that they have on correct. it? Correct. What in, I mean, I know what inspired this story, but for people who don't know what your speech is about, what inspired you to want to share that with the world? Well, honestly, I went to a, so the story that I told is about a wedding that I went to in India, and it was my first time in India. It was my first time in an Indian wedding, and it was a very interesting ceremony or ritual that they play where the groomsmen have to protect the shoes from the bridesmaids right. and the bridesmaids if they win the shoes they'll get to ransom the shoes back to the groom and he has to pay money for them so there's money involved in this and i've heard that the sum of money can get quite large in some weddings uh so the bridesmaids are very motivated and they it's hijinks ensue Let, let's just say that right so it was my first time experiencing that and it was just so crazy for me because I'm used to just being at a wedding. You have to sit there, you have to be quiet and you're just sitting there quietly forever. And then the the wedding is over. But in this one, it was just like, it was actually like a side event right. <laughs> during the actual ceremony. So that was, it was really interesting and I wanted to share it, but I also wanted to share it because I was in another country I was with my friend who's Caucasian and he's with his family and his bride to be, she's Indian and she has her family and I'm the only African American guy there. So I feel a little out of place, but during that whole time, nobody ever made me feel like I was out of place. Right. And I really wanted to highlight that, especially in this divisive time that we're living in with the whole political climate in the United States and even around the world, really. it's a lot of high tension based on race and culture and background. So I wanted to highlight that there are people in the world who don't care about that, who will embrace people even though they are different. Right. And the the wedding was happening between the Caucasian and the Indian or was it two Indian people, but the Caucasian and Indian were with you? Uh, no, no, yeah, it was Caucasian and Indian. So the, uh, the groom was Caucasian and the bride was Indian. Interesting. So it was an interracial marriage that was happening with people in the audience who were obviously from different races because the groom was a different race. So your speech was kind of a culmination of like this multicultural ability for people to just be in the same room without having to disagree with each other because they're different humans at the end of the day. Yep, exactly. Interesting. Why do you think that won you the speech or the championship? Do you think the story was that good or do you think your execution of the story was good? I think it was a combination of multiple things. So it was definitely a relevant topic. 
And it was so relevant that even the second and third place winners also talked about something similar about differences in race and prejudice. It, like I said, it's a relevant speech, very current, especially in the current political climate. But I think it was also just the execution of it. So it was told in a different way. I decided that I wasn't going to try to be like any other world champion. I made it a mission not to put it in front of any other world champion of public speaking. Uh, There was actually one world champion that I did put it in front of, and that was because somebody else had paid for it. So I said, I'm not going to waste their money, so I'll, I'll oblige and do it. But I didn't get any coaching from a previous world champion, which is a lesson in itself. People think that in order to get to a certain height, you need to have tutelage from the people who also reached that height. That's not true. Right. Uh, I will say that you want people that have been where you haven't been, but it doesn't mean you need the person that's at the top. Right. All right. But the uh, speech itself was just a fun story. And I told it in a fun, different way. I looked different from everybody else. So I wore traditional Indian attire. Uh, something similar that I wore to the wedding and it was just different. And that's one of the goals that I had. I wanted to be on stage and I wanted to be different Right. and it, it, it helped win. But I will also say that luck always plays a factor. If there were different judges that day, I would be the second place winner again. Yeah. I definitely couldn't control it. I'm happy that I was chosen as the champion, but I'll never say that. Oh yeah, I did it. And it's because of A, B, and C that I became the world champion of public speaking because if I hadn't won the world championship of public speaking, people would have said that I would have lost because of A, B, and C. Right, right, right. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I, th- I think the, the thing that distinguishes people that can overcome the subjectivity of speaking and debate competitions, because I was at debate competitions and we would have a three-judge panel and sometimes it would be a 2-1 against me, for me, etc., just based on different circumstances, is if you can keep on doing it over and over again. And that doesn't mean win the championship over and over again. That just means get close. And based upon what you've described, you've gotten pretty close decently, right? Semifinals, round five, second place. So I think that kind of establishes that you know what you're doing here. Judges differ from place to place, and that could uh, completely change the results. You're yeah. not you're not traveling right now giving keynotes and speeches to the to the best of my knowledge. Is that something that you want to do in the future? Is that something you're thinking of given the this championship? So I do do it, but it's more so as a side hustle, I guess you can say. And it's mostly in the Toastmaster arena. So once when you win the world championship of public speaking, there isn't any financial gain that you get. You don't win prize money. All you win is a Lucite trophy, which is a type of plastic. But saying Lucite sounds better than plastic. But the thing with it is that when you win and even if you place high in the contest people will want you to speak at their district conference so toastmasters as i said is broken up into different districts every year these districts have a conference and they need speakers to fill those conferences so they'll pay for your flight they'll pay for your food they'll pay for your accommodation to go and speak to these different places so i actually had a second trip to india this year because of that Uh, and i've been to taiwan because of that i've been to uh, multiple places around the United States because of it. Next year is going to be quite fun because I'm going back to India. Uh, obviously, the content of my speech, I pretty much have to go back to India every year from now on. <laughs> yeah. 
Then in um, April, I'm going to Japan. I'm going to, I was going to Greece, but I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But I am also going to Sri Lanka. And this is all for talking at these Toastmaster conferences. Interesting. Yep. So you're kind of getting to see the world based upon this 10-year journey you've been on and trying to win the championship. Yep, absolutely. And that is one of my lifetime goals where I wanted to just travel around the world and meet different people. Right. I have a goal to step on all seven continents around the world. Um, at five, I only need Africa and Antarctica. Right, got two more. Now, now, when I did debate in high school, um, and I would come back from a tournament uh, on the Monday after the weekend, uh, my, I, I might have won first place or something. And my friends were like, where were you? I was like, oh, I was at a debate tournament. They were like, so you left school to go, like, talk? That, that's your competition event? You just go talk and stuff? And I'm like, yeah. When you went back to corporate America, went back to your job, did people know that you had just won a championship? Did they, like, say congratulations? You know, what was it like? Yeah, so both years that I played second and then this year when I won, my job knew about it. So I work for J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, one of the largest banks in the world. And I'm a project manager there, been with the firm for going on nine years now. So almost as long as I've been a member of Toastmasters. But when they found out in 2016, it was actually a pretty big deal where it got up to really senior level managers and they told me to do interviews and they had me on like the front of the entire like uh website of jp morgan wow. so like everybody around the world Morgan's saw it you. <laughs> <laughs> uh this year it, it was a little bit more subdued i think it's because like okay dude you did this in 2016 we're not going to do the whole thing over again but they they still put me on the the website. They still had me do interviews, and it was pretty cool. Awesome, awesome. So we talked for a good thirty minutes about the journey, and I think uh, that's valuable because a lot of people wanted to know some of the insides about how to eventually do what you did. And I think anyone who's that dedicated can can do what you did, right? If they have the will and determination to do it. Now let's get into Absolutely. some nitty gritty stuff. First question: yep. How do people get over the fear of public speaking? Yeah. Honestly, getting over the fear of public speaking is number one, realize that there is no such thing as fear of public speaking. I will say that nobody fears public speaking. What you fear is some aspect of public speaking and it's up to you to find out what aspect you're afraid of. It could be because you're afraid of forgetting what you wanna say, which is what I feared. It could be because of all the eyes are staring at you in the room. It could be because you just don't like the spotlight. You don't like being up on stage by yourself. You need to find the specific reason why you are afraid of public speaking or the multiple reasons why you are specifically afraid of public speaking. Don't make it so generic because when you make it generic, you're making it this huge mountain that is almost impossible to climb. But when you say the aspect, the specific aspect that you're afraid of, that's when you can just make it a small hurdle. And then you can jump over that hurdle. You can walk around that hurdle. It's much easier to conquer. So first you have to specify what the fear is, and then you have to take action on it. And the best way to take action is just through exposure therapy and repetition. So if you fear the eyes looking at you, you need to get up and speak and have eyes looking at you as much as possible. If eye contact is really a problem, there's virtual reality uh, software that you can use to 
have simulated eyes stare at you and get used to it that way. If you are a person who's afraid of what you're going, afraid that you're going to forget what you want to say, then you can do a very simple time honored tradition of practicing. So practicing is something that is undervalued, oddly enough, even though it's so simple. But one way that I practice is by actually recording myself. So get used to hearing your own voice and listening back. And it's hard. Sometimes you listen back to yourself, you say, oh, my God, I can't believe I really sound like that. But guess what? You do. The voice that you hear coming out of that audio is basically what I would hear if we were talking to one another. So don't be afraid of your own voice. Uh, But that's one way that I practice. So you have to find the reason. Then you have to expose yourself to it. And the rest is just time. Right. Now, why do you think people are so afraid of public speaking? Do you think it's something about how humans generally uh in social interactions don't want to be the center of attention or that when they are the center of attention and there is this centralized focus on just them it becomes sort of like a responsibility and a duty to entertain or inform and a lot of people aren't up to that challenge do you think it's rooted in some type of unique psychology in that way i do i I do think that it's because humans are more attuned to being in groups Right. So when you're isolated, you basically feel like you're in danger where we have a pack mentality where we like to be around one another, even if we are not like the closest friends, we still like to be around other humans uh, just for our own safety. When we're alone, when we're on stage, our bodies are basically saying that there's no difference between me being on stage right now than a lion or a tiger about to attack me. I feel it as almost just as much danger. Right. But then the other part of it is just the social element of it, and it's that judgment. You fear that you're going to be made fun of, you fear that you're going to be rejected, and you feel feel that you're going to fail. Right. And you don't want that to happen. So I would say that it roots, it stems from just embarrassment or the fear of embarrassment and just being by yourself. Right. Now, what would you say to someone who came up to you and said, Aaron, I know you're the champion of public speaking internationally, world, woohoo, good job. Um, (laughs) But public speaking and the fundamentals of public speaking aren't really a thing. Meaning, if I have something I want to say and I'm not afraid to get up and say what I want to say, the content of my message will outweigh any particular body movement, hand gestures, eye contact, voice inflection that I portray on stage, if the message of what I'm trying to say is powerful enough, would you agree with the sentiment that learning the fundamentals of public speaking are technical skills that enhance your message, but at the end of the day, the content of what you say has to overpower everything else? I wouldn't say that it has to, but it definitely can. You have people that are fundamentally sound, They are pound for pound, great public speakers. But when you hear them speak, you can say, okay, they did a good job. I know that's a good speech, but it doesn't really do anything for me. But then you have occasions where you have a total novice. They're completely afraid. They're making all sorts of public speaking mistakes and taboos. They're obviously not very skilled at public speaking but they have a message that really resonates and that really connects and they're coming at you in such a they're coming at you in such a raw way right. that they just move you right so that is something that 
tend to happen where you have people that don't have the fundamentals, but they have this incredible message. Now, if they take that ability to have that incredible message and they enhance their fundamental public speaking skills, then those are the people that can make big money in the public speaking world. When you mix the great message with the ability, that's when you can really make some noise in, in the public speaking world. But I would say that it's not a necessity, right. but you it really matters if you're coming from the heart and being authentic. Um, I saw one of your uh, YouTube videos where you analyzed your own speech and at one moment you paused it and you said um, I think you said like Jack and me it probably wasn't Jack but and you were like I, I messed up it should have been Jack and I that subtle mm -hmm. nuance of like a grammatical mistake does that only matter at Toastmasters does that only matter in competitions or in general do you think that there should be proper English when you're on stage speaking no, I don't think that it should be proper, air quote, English. I am a firm believer in getting the ball over the net. If right. you can get the ball over the net and people understand, then you're good. I think, though, that you also need to keep in mind of the different audiences that you have. Right. So if I'm going to be speaking in front of a whole bunch of English professors, I better make sure that my grammar is absolutely impeccable right. or else they're they're going to be totally distracted with all of my grammatical errors that they're not going to pay attention to what I have to say. Right. So in Toastmasters, grammar is actually one of the criteria that is used to judge. Right. And right. the thing about it is that I don't know if I was truly marked down because of that. Yeah. Uh, there's a high chance that I was, uh, but there are no, there are no ways where you can learn how the judging was done. It's totally anonymous and the ballots are destroyed right after the results are written down. So you really don't know how the judges judge. It's just something that I found later down the line. And on when I was on stage, there's actually a point where you can see my eyes get wide and like, oh crap, I just said, I just said it the wrong way. That was grammatically incorrect. Right. And then a little bit later, I did the same thing again. I said, oh, well, at least I'm consistent. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Um, one of the questions I get a lot for public speaking is uh, the memorization of a speech. So, so people who are like in a class presentation uh, who don't want to look at the slides the whole time, they're like, what are the best tips to actually understand my speech and execute it properly? Now you at the championships, and, and I guess this is a, a sub layer to that question, have you verbatim practiced and memorized the speech to, to a T where everything is coming out pretty much the same at, at time and time again after practice? Or is it you have the idea of the speech and the words kind of fill themselves out in order to be as organic and natural as possible. How would someone memorize it and still be organic? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me personally, I do like to try to remember almost verbatim. I can't remember every single word or when I'm on stage, every single word doesn't come out the way that I wrote it. Right. But again, I have enough of it to get it over the net. But you do have people that can, they basically just have an outline and then they'll go on stage and try to wing it. Right. And that works for them. You really have to find the style that works for you. But I like to actually write out my speeches word for word, and then I will record myself reading that script verbatim. And I'm trying to incorporate all of the vocal variety, all of the pacing and pausing. When I have the recording in a way that I want, I will listen 
to that recording. So again, people get over your voice and that's the way you sound. Just listen to yourself. But when I have a good recording, I can then listen to that recording over and over again. Right. And it's similar to how you memorize your favorite song. You memorize your favorite song, you know every single word. It's because you've listened to it so many times. Right. And it's the city for speech. If you listen to it so many times, if you look at it on paper so many times, you're internalizing it. Yeah. So that's how I internalize my speeches, by just constant editing and rewriting, but mostly through the listening process. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And, and say, I, I mean, I did the same thing in high school. It's, it's so similar. Every time I gave a debate speech, I would record it on the camera. Just put the front-facing camera, record it. As soon as the speech ended, I would pop in the headphones and listen to myself. Because then you can be honest with yourself, and it hurts to be honest with yourself, but point out moments where you were awkward. And point out moments where yep. if you can be like, that sounded weird. I mean, imagine how other people think that sounds. Um, exactly. Yeah, so that's that's very important. So, yeah, uh, my my last sort of uh, this my second to last main question to you is: um, if someone wants to be a speaker, if someone has a message and an idea, and they fall in love with the medium of public speaking, some people communicate through drawing, through music, through performing, but they want to be on stage, they want to speak. What I guess best advice would you give to someone who has an idea, who wants to start speaking, and wants to get the attention of people to listen to their message? What should they do? How should they get their message out there? Yeah. So honestly, nowadays, it's easier than ever to get your message out there. One piece of advice that I would give to people wanting to get their message out into the world is start video recording yourself and start posting it. Yeah. So you have Facebook, you have LinkedIn, you have uh, Instagram, you have all these other social media platforms where you can go and post videos with people who will follow you. You have groups that you can join, people that feel similar ways to you. You can find the, those people. Now, if you want to take it into a professional realm, I would say first you want to make sure that you have those fundamentals because usually the people who are great speakers have at least solid fundamentals of public speaking, and you can learn that in Toastmasters. So I would definitely suggest that you hone your craft at Toastmasters, but Toastmasters will teach you the art of public speaking and the science of public speaking, but they don't teach you the business of public speaking. What, what do you mean by, so, that, by business of speaking? So the business of public speaking is finding the right audience, finding out what audience will pay you for a certain message. Right. So if you have a message that you want to give, there's an audience who may want to hear that. You need to find what that audience is, where they are. Right. right. For instance, you can probably make a career talking about Batman movies. There's probably an audience that needs that will want to hear that. I wouldn't say they need to hear it, but so <laughs> there's an audience out there that will want that. Basically saying the business of public speaking is that if you have a message, kind of like YouTube, if you have, if you want to start a Batman channel, there's going to be an audience for people. If you have a message that can be communicated effectively through the medium of speaking, you need to do the dirty work of finding what conferences and events across the world talk about that stuff, gather around that stuff, and then go get your message out there, basically. Yep, exactly. Talk to the right people, network, see if they need a speaker. The thing about conferences is that they always need a speaker. Yeah, yeah. So if you find these people and you are able to get in touch with the right people, get in front of the right audiences, you can make a nice little career out of public speaking. Right. Awesome. That sounds good. My final question to you, I ask this to everyone else on the podcast, answer it 
however you like, is are you happy right now, Mr. World Champion? Yeah, I will say that I'm pretty happy right now. I definitely, definitely cannot complain. But also know that I can't be content and there's more that I can, more that I can do. Are you going to compete for the 2020 championship? Are we getting an exclusive here on the podcast? <laughs> well, the, the thing is, in the Toastmasters International Speech Contest, once you win the world championship, you are never allowed to compete again. You can't defend the title? Oh, man. <laughs> wow. Yep, so I, I'm eventually forced into retirement. At least you can never lose the title. No, technically. So. Yep, exactly. <laughs> All right, everybody, that is Aaron Beverly. Aaron, just tell everybody where they can find you on social media, and then we'll be out. Absolutely. You can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find me under my name, Aaron Beverly, and other times it's Aaron W. Beverly. But either way, you should be able to find me, and feel free to stay in touch. All right. Awesome. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Public Speakers Podcast.